Hey, it's Andy. Thank you so much for listening. We got a big show for you today. I answer your questions, and man, you've got some good ones. We're going to talk a little conference realignment. We'll talk Jim Harbaugh at Michigan. We'll also talk about Tennessee and why I think it's the highest pressure job in the country. Of course, there will be a random ranking. This time, it'll be the worst supervillains in cinematic history. It's going to be a lot of fun, and the Andy Staples Show starts right now. Welcome to the Andy Staples Show. It is Listener Participation Day at the Andy Staples Show. That's right. It is another episode of Dear Andy live on tape, but we don't really use tape, and I I swear we are going to come up with a name for this segment eventually, but the gist of it is you ask me questions and I answer them. We got a lot of good questions. You know I do the Dear Andy column on The Athletic every Thursday. I always get more questions than I can answer. Some questions are actually better suited to be answered audibly, and some are good for written and audible answers, but I never get to them all. And you guys ask such good questions, so I wanted to have a way to answer as many as I could. And so we've added these episodes of of The Andy Staples Show where I answer your questions, and uh, hopefully you get as much out of them as I do because I, I got to tell you, you guys come up with some great topics, help me generate conversation, help me think about what I'm going to write, what I'm going to talk about because I love knowing what's on your mind and just what you're thinking about in the world of college football because you guys are the ones watching, reading. I want to know what you want to know about. And one thing you almost always want to know about, this is a topic that for the last 10 years has guaranteed Big responses. You guys have lots of opinions on this. I have lots of opinions on it. It is conference realignment. Now, we are 10 years since all the stuff started going down. Remember, when the Pac-10 tried to grab six teams from the Big 12, and then the Big 12 saved itself, but Colorado still left, and Nebraska still left, and then the Pac-10 became the Pac-12 because they grabbed Colorado and Utah, and then Nebraska was at the Big Ten, and then everything changed, and A&M and Missouri went to the SEC. That started 10 years ago, and it has been relatively quiet since the Rutgers-Maryland move to the Big Ten. The big question on everybody's mind is when does that start again? Dwayne in Center, Alabama asked it this way. I'm curious about hypothetical conference expansion. It's been a while since we've had some reshuffled Power 5 teams. So my question is, do you think it'll happen again? And who would you like to see or expect to see switch conferences or divisions? And Dwayne says, in the case of Missouri being in the SEC East. And, you know, geographically, no, Missouri should not be in the SEC East. But I actually don't see much happening on the SEC front unless it's a case of getting rid of divisions and going to pods, which I think they'll start talking about. I don't think that's imminent in any any way, shape, or form. Here's the deal with realignment. I remember Larry Scott, the Pac-12 commissioner, after everything went down in 2010, 11, 12, saying there's definitely going to be another round of realignment. There's absolutely going to be another round. But as we get closer, I do wonder, will there really be? Because if I'm the SEC... There's nobody left to take. If I'm the Big Ten, there's nobody left to take. If I'm the ACC, I might 
keep trying to convince Notre Dame to join me as a full member and, and join in football, but Notre Dame has made it very clear they do not want to join a conference in football. So I'm not exactly sure where that would be because you saw it with the Big 12 a few years ago and they held auditions and there's this big dog and pony show. And in the end, they realized, why would we want another mouth to feed? Because none of the schools we're talking to, be it UCF, Cincinnati, Boise State, are going to bring the kind of money that's going to justify adding another member and we might be taking money away from existing members. So that's not going to happen. But here's the thing, Dwayne. I think there is an opportunity for one particular league to make itself stronger at the expense of another Power 5 league. And it would really shake up the world of college athletics. This is something that if one particular conference does want to get aggressive, I think it might be able to pull off. And you'll see why based on some recent comments by somebody in one of those leagues. So let's let's start it off like this. Let me give you a little history lesson. Before the 2010 moves by the Pac-10, there was a meeting between the Pac-10 and the Big 12 about a potential scheduling alliance that would allow both leagues to make more money off television. Over the course of these meetings, Larry Scott, who had just taken over as the commissioner of the Pac-10, comes up with this idea. He's like, wait a second. Why would we have a scheduling alliance when we could just take their best teams and create our own network and have this mondo mega TV deal that everybody would want because we would have Texas, Oklahoma, USC, UCLA, Oregon, Washington, Arizona, Arizona State. And so he tried to do that. And he almost pulled it off. If not for Texas pulling the okie doke at the last minute, because that's what, what really happened is Texas was playing both sides against the middle. They were negotiating with the Pac-10, but they were also negotiating with the Big 12 to stay together, but give the schools a chance to start their own networks or do whatever they wanted to with their third-tier media rights, which Texas, as you know, used to create the Longhorn Network. So they got way down the road with the Pac-10, and then at the 11th hour, they said, hey, we don't really want to give you our third-tier rights and be part of your network. We're going to do our own network. And the Pac-10 the is like, no, 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 that's not how this works. And Texas is like, oh, well, we'll just stay in the Big 12, thanks. And then the whole plan falls apart. And everybody laughed at the Big 12 for a long time, because remember, the Big 12 nearly imploded again the following year when Texas A&M and Missouri left. So... Everybody thinks the Big 12 is this laughing stock and it's poorly run and, and nobody knows what they're doing there. And they've done some things over the years that, that would give you that idea. Like they paid a consultant after two years of the college football playoff to look into it and say, well, here's what we think you should do to give yourself a better chance to get in the playoff based on this data. Well, two years of data. There was no data to, to base it on. So basically that, that company just stole the Big 12's money and the solution was, hey, look into expansion. And they did look into expansion and realized, wait, we don't want to do that. But here's the thing. The Big 12 is not as poorly run as people outside Big 12 country think. The Big 12 is actually pretty well run, and it has a pretty good set of TV deals. Not as good as the SEC and the Big 10, but pretty good. And then the bigger you are, the more you make off those third-tier rights. So the Texas has the Longhorn Network, Oklahoma has its deal with Fox. 
even Kansas and Iowa State have pretty good deals. So the Big 12 is just sitting there with 10 schools and a really good TV deal, and they have a TV deal coming up. The year before the Big 12's TV deal expires, the Pac-12's TV deal expires. What the Big 12 needs to do is the reverse of what Larry Scott wanted to do in 2010. The Big 12 needs to raid the Pac-12. The Big 12 needs to go to USC, UCLA, Arizona, Arizona State, Oregon, and Washington and say, are you tired of not getting any money from your league? Are you tired of not getting any money out of your third-tier rights? Well, come join us because all together as a 16-team league, we would command a huge primary television package. We would command a huge secondary television package. You then would be able to sell your third tier for whatever you want. USC, if you think you're super valuable, well, look at what Texas has done. Try to do the same thing. Sitting there in one of the biggest media markets in the country. For the Big 12, it would be huge because you would add these massive markets. You would add L.A., you would add Phoenix. You would add Seattle. Then you would also be adding these big national brands. USC, Oregon, Washington, UCLA. UCLA hasn't been good at football. Still a big national brand. So it would be doable. That's the thing. The Pac-12 is in such a weakened state right now. This is something the Big 12 could pull off. All you have to do is look at the comments that Mike Bone gave to Ryan Abraham at uscfootball.com and to Dennis Dodd from cbssports.com. Mike Bone, the new AD at USC, came from Cincinnati. He's been asked about this and asked about hypothetical conference reaffiliation. He has said we would be open to it. He was asked to clarify by Dennis Dodd. He didn't back off. He said they'd be open to ideas. I think USC fans are thinking independence, which USC could probably pull off, but the Big 12 would be a better move for USC. And think about that league. Texas, Oklahoma, TCU, Oklahoma State, Baylor, USC, UCLA, Oregon, Washington, the Arizona schools. That's a pretty fun league. You could divide it in a couple different ways. Uh, you, you could do eight and eight. You could do pods. There are a lot of different ways to do it. But from a television standpoint, it would be great. And here's the thing. The new set of TV deals are not going to be like the last set. What drove realignment last time was territory acquisition. It was getting new markets so that you could charge more money to more people for your conference cable channel. Okay, with all the cord cutting going on, that is not necessarily the prime motivation anymore. Now the motivation is pick up brand names. Pick up as many brand names as you can. Well, those are the brand names that would be available. Now, if they don't want to leave the Pac-12, they're not available. But those are the only brand names right now that you could conceivably get. Because the Pac-12 network has been a disaster. They feel like Pac-12 leadership has sort of left them behind. And they might be willing to listen. They want to close that gap with the SEC and the Big Ten. They cannot do it in the Pac-12. 
Now, what would that mean for Oregon State, for Washington State, for Stanford, for Cal? It wouldn't be good. It'd be real bad. They would become group of five schools. But that is how that business works. Now, let's say the Big Ten, excuse me, the Big 12 put these offers out. And Oregon said, hey, politically, we can't go without Oregon State. And Washington said, politically, we can't go without Washington State. You know what the Big 12 would say? Too bad. Enjoy the group of five. And go as a 14-team league with the LA schools and the Arizona schools. Because they're the only safe harbor at this point. There's nowhere else to go. So I'm very curious to see how aggressive the Big 12 would be in something like this. Because they really could gut the Pac-12 if they wanted to and create a very strong league that would be, I don't know if it's the financial rival of the Big Ten or the SEC, but it would command a pretty good TV deal. Remember, no conference network. And in fact, shouldn't even broach the idea of starting a conference network because you know what would attract USC? The ability to have their own Longhorn network. I think Oregon might feel that way too. That's the thing that would attract them. You don't need to have a conference network at that point. The schools that could command more money would get more money, and that's what they want. They're tired of floating the other ones. That's what USC doesn't want to do anymore. So it's possible you could entice them with this model that you've been made fun of for years. It might actually wind up helping you here. This is the deal. This is what they should do. Will they have the guts to do it when this comes around? I don't know. There's several years between now and then. You, you know, this None of this would happen until 2023, 2024, but the groundwork would be laid much earlier. And it is, it is doable for the Big 12. If the leadership in the Big 12 wants to be aggressive, wants to solidify the long-term prospects of the conference – wants to close the gap with the Big Ten and the SEC, probably get ahead of the ACC, that's what you do. And perhaps that helps those West Coast schools become more relevant in college football. I, I just, I think this is, this is a distinct possibility and there will be a little poetic justice in it if that's how it goes down, if they wind up gutting the conference that tried to destroy them. I think there's some folks in the Big 12 who haven't forgotten 10 years ago, who haven't forgotten nine years ago. And they may be willing to do this. And it would be up to the Pac-12 to put together a much more attractive TV deal. But here's the thing, that grant of rights, which is basically what the school, when the schools say, we grant all our television rights to the conference, to our home games, for this period of time. That grant of rights ends with the Pac-12's TV deal, which ends in the 2023-24 school year, so spring of 2024. Once that's over, those schools can go anywhere they want. You know, It might even be worth it for the Big 12 to try to, to get it done a year early, lock down its new TV deal, and say, guys, I realize you're, you're not going to make the money for your home games that you expected this year, but trust me, it'll be made up for on the back end. It's worth it to be aggressive because that's the only move there is. Now, would there be fallout from that? I don't know. 
because the, there was always this assumption that once one league went to 16, they all would. But let's say the Big 12 targeted those six schools that I suggested and got them all. Who would anybody else add? And would you even want to? Would the SEC add anybody who could make more money? Not really. They'd probably lose money per school by adding anybody that would be left. Ditto for the Big Ten. Ditto for the ACC except for Notre Dame. If, if they could convince Notre Dame to come, obviously that's worth a bunch to them. And then maybe they would take another to get to 16 and just even things out. But I don't really think there's a move to be made for the SEC or the Big Ten. I think they've got good numbers where they're at, and they wouldn't really have to do anything. So that would be the most dramatic move. If the Big 12 isn't willing to do that, I don't foresee another big round of realignment. And I know that frustrates people who are fans of UCF and Cincinnati and Boise State, but I'm just not sure where the, where the opportunity is. Because you need a league that feels like it needs to, to expand, take in brands to make more money. I'm not sure there's more money in those brands. I think UCF could eventually be that type of brand and that type of school because it's a relatively young school, huge student body, though. Going to have a big alumni base. That will be a big viewer base down the road. But I don't know how far down the road these guys are looking. So this is... This is the one thing that I think could happen. And it's the thing, if you're the Big 12, I think should happen. If, if I'm in the Big 12, if I work at Oklahoma or at Texas or at Iowa State or Kansas State, I'm telling Bob Bowlesby, the commissioner, this is what we need to do in a few years. We need to grab those guys because we can make this league very strong. They are unhappy with their league. Now, we'll see if they remain unhappy. You know, they're going to talk about whether Larry Scott will continue as the commissioner. But the thing is, I don't know that they can get people to care about the Pac-12, about the schools. You know, USC has a big fan base. Oregon has very passionate fans. Washington has very passionate fans. But for the most part, they don't care as much. They don't care like SEC fans care. They don't care like Big Ten fans care. And that's why their cable network has not been very successful. So I don't know what you do at that point. But if you add them to Texas and Oklahoma, where people care deeply, to Oklahoma State, where people care deeply, Texas Tech doesn't have a huge fan base, but they care deeply. All of a sudden, you got a pretty good league. So we'll see what they do. But that is the only one, Dwayne, that I can see happening. Let's go to Ben in Chicagoland. When, if ever, will Michigan consider pulling the cord on the Jim Harbaugh experience? Five straight bowl losses, another loss to Ohio State, losing to big bro Michigan State who has a first-year coach, other? I feel like the 2020 season has plenty of potential landmines for Harbaugh. Here's the thing, Ben. No matter how frustrating this may be, and I don't know if Ben's a Michigan fan or not. I don't. He may be an Ohio State fan just gleefully poking at Michigan. This is better than it was. This is better than, than Brady Hoke. This is better than Rich Rodriguez. So it, it's not that bad. And it's frustrating to lose to Ohio State every year. But it's a lot more frustrating to be what they were. So I think there's still a while to go before they get to the point of, you can't beat Ohio State, we must do something different. But I will say... Both parties may get frustrated with one another at a certain point and mutually agree 
that they don't want to do this anymore if this keeps up, if they can't beat Ohio State, if Penn State stays better than them. And, you know, that seems to depend on where the game gets played. When, when Penn State comes to Ann Arbor, it doesn't seem to go very well for Penn State. So we'll see how that goes. If Mel Tucker starts building a monster in East Lansing, and look, we don't know what Mel Tucker is going to be in East Lansing. Mel Tucker has been a head coach for one year. He went five and seven at Colorado. Now we know he's a good recruiter. He was a successful recruiter at Ohio State, a successful recruiter at Alabama, a successful recruiter at Georgia. So he seems to know what he's looking for and also understand the kind of infrastructure you need to be successful at that level. So I would bet that Michigan State does get more talented over the next few years. I don't know that 2020 is the year, though. I don't know that that that's when Michigan State's ready to pounce on Michigan quite yet. But I'm with you, Ben, that at a certain point, you reach that that Bo Pelini at Nebraska territory, that plateau, where you just want to feel something different. And I don't think it's going to come from the Michigan administration. I think the pressure would come from Michigan's fan base where they just get fed up. I think Harbaugh may may put that pressure on himself and just get sick of not not getting to where he wants to be. But I, I don't think Michigan's administration will be the one that says, hey, you got to go. I, I think they take a more measured approach to this just because there's enough people still there who remember the bad old days eight, nine years ago that don't want to go back to that because if they make a bad hire, that's what they're back to. So they've got to be pretty careful here because they do have a guy who beats all the teams he's supposed to beat. But they got to figure out how to beat some of the teams they're not supposed to beat. And we'll see. I mean, Josh Gaddis was a first-time play caller last year. It really took half the season for them to figure out what they were on offense. And then once they did, they had some pretty good games. So I'm not ready to give up on the Jim Harbaugh era at Michigan quite yet. I realize that the Ohio State thing feels insurmountable. And I'll be honest, I'm not sure Ohio State's slowing down at any point and not slowing down enough for Michigan to catch up, for sure. But if they can keep winning 8, 9, 10 games a year, it is awfully hard to imagine them running him off. Now, maybe I, maybe he gets sick of it and decides he wants to do something different. That I can imagine. But them running him off, I, I just can't. So we'll see what happens. I don't really expect anything much different this year because, if anything, we've learned that Jim Harbaugh is extremely consistent as Michigan's coach. The problem is he's not consistently what they want him to be. So we'll see what happens. Got a question here from Benjamin. First time, long time. You made an interesting comment the other day concerning the Tennessee job being the highest pressure job in the country. Why is that? I understand expectations for some will all be always be that of the 90s, and the local cover, sports coverage can be a fishbowl. But I also feel that UT fans are generally all in with their coaches, i.e. the lane train, Dooley's orange pants, brick by brick, and consistently show up in droves. I graduated from the Big Orange in 2013, so I've lived through the aforementioned eras, but also the Fulmer Fulmer Glory years. The landscape has changed, and while I agree it's a pressure cooker, I think it'd also be one of the most rewarding jobs in college football. Wouldn't you agree? My expectations are to win eight games consistently in every three to four years, knock off a Georgia, Florida, Bama, obviously not all three in a season, and get to Atlanta. Are those reasonable? See, here's the thing, Benjamin. Your expectations are extremely reasonable. They're exactly what the expectations should be at Tennessee. Those are perfect. I'm just afraid that many of your fellow fans do not share that. I think there's a lot of people 
who lived through the Philip Fulmer era, who think that's how it should be, that they should be one of the best two teams in the SEC every year, that they should always be competing for the SEC title, that they should always be in the national title mix. And I'm just not sure that's possible right now. With the rest of the SEC being as strong as it is, with Georgia being what they are in the East, with Florida being good in the East, that's a tough climb. Georgia and Florida have much more in terms of natural advantages, you know, in terms of recruiting base. Tennessee has to recruit nationally to be successful. The state's not going to provide enough. And the problem now is the surrounding states are not so easy to pick off. You can't go into South Carolina like Philip Fulmer did and go get Albert Hainsworth. Albert Hainsworth is going to Clemson now. The Albert Hainsworth of today isn't going to even give Tennessee the time of day. He's just going to go to Clemson. So that's the problem that Tennessee runs into is other schools have come up. Everybody's on TV now. You know, it used to be they, they could say, well, you don't want to go to Clemson or South Carolina or North Carolina because when are you ever going to be on TV? Well, now everybody's on TV every game. So it's a, just a different era, and the job Jeremy Pruitt has is considerably harder than the job Philip Fulmer had. That doesn't mean Tennessee can't be good. Tennessee can be good. Tennessee can be one of the best teams in the SEC East and can do exactly what Benjamin said, where every few years they do cycle up. They are better than Florida. They are as good or better than Georgia and win an East title. It's possible. That's definitely possible. I just don't know that they can be that every year, and that's unfortunately what it seems like some Tennessee fans want. And when I say it's the the, the toughest job – it does feel like the biggest pressure cooker in terms of media, of expectations relative to what you're actually capable of. And the media environment there is a little weird. It, there's a lot of sports talk. There's three TV stations. Knoxville is not a huge town, but it's big enough to have all the TV stations. It's big enough to have multiple sports talk radio stations. And all they think about is Tennessee football. Every once in a while, they'll talk, they'll talk a little Tennessee basketball, but for the most part, it is Tennessee football all the time. They obsess about it 24-7, 365. And I realize that goes on in Alabama too, but the difference is you've got Auburn to shear off some of the because you know Auburn fans don't care if Alabama's good. They're not putting pressure on Nick Saban. And Alabama fans aren't putting pressure on Gus Malzahn. So it... it mitigates that a little bit in Tennessee there's just Tennessee you know Vanderbilt and Memphis are in the state but Tennessee is the school that most people pay attention to and it is a it is an absolute pressure cooker of a job I don't know that this is going to be any easier anytime soon but I think Jeremy Pruitt's the right kind of guy for it because he's kind of got that rhino skin you know, nothing seems to bother him a whole lot. Butch Jones kind of had rabbit ears. He he was listening to all kinds of stuff, and you just can't do that as Tennessee's coach. You have to be able to block it out and ignore it. That's why I didn't think Greg Schiano would be a good coach there because he paid attention to all that stuff too when he was at Rutgers and when he was with the Tampa Bay Bucks, and it would have driven him insane. He just would not have been able to take it. Jeremy Pruitt seems to have the right constitution for it. Now he just has to win the games. But it's a tough job. If every Tennessee fan were like Benjamin, I would not call it the highest pressure job in the country. But unfortunately for Jeremy Pruitt, 
not everyone is as sensible as Benjamin. But Benjamin, you got it right. We now go to our random ranking. And Dwayne, who asked our, our realignment question, is the guy who made the request for the worst supervillains in cinematic history. And I'm going to take Dwayne at his word. He may have meant best supervillains in cinematic history. But I, I, that's not as fun of a category. You know, I love Heath, Leather, Heath Ledger's Joker, Thanos, Gene Hackman's Lex Luthor. Those are great, great movie supervillains. We're going to make a list of truly terrible movie supervillains because he said the worst ones. So we're going to do the worst supervillains in cinematic history. And we will start with a guy you know from that 70s show, Topher Grace. Topher Grace was Venom in Spider-Man 3. Now, as we know since, Tom Hardy has played Venom in the movie Venom. He's got another sequel coming out. That's Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy was also Bane in Batman. So he, he is a great actor. He plays great villains. I can't remember the name of the guy he played on Peaky Blinders. That was also a great villain. But he, he plays great villains. Topher Grace, not really in the same league. Spider-Man 3, I think we can agree, should not have existed except for Tobey Maguire's bad Spider-Man strut. That was probably the only thing in this movie worth watching. But uh, Topher Grace as Venom, you are the number five or supervillain. You made me lose my girl. Now I'm going to make you lose yours. How's that sound, Tiger? Yeah, you're possessed by a symbiote. You're not smoking out with Kelso in the basement. <laughs> we, you gotta, you gotta play it up a little more, and that's what that's what Tom Tom Hardy did, and that's why his was better. Next, Emma Frost in X Men First Class. She's our number four worst supervillain in cinematic history. Uh, this is pretty good movie actually, but. Uh, January Jones played Emma Frost, and just uh, it it was not the most uh, emphatic acting that January Jones has ever done. You're thinking of running, hiding. We'd find you, Henry. There's not a fortress in the world that could keep us out. I realize she's supposed to be cold. She's Emma Frost. She can turn herself into ice, but you got to emote a little bit. Emote behind the, the, the chill. And besides, if I want to see January Jones as an icy supervillain, I will watch her as Betty Draper in Mad Men, where she was fantastic. So I can't, I can't do that one either. And I, We're entering a new class, though, once we get to number three. Number three is from one of the worst superhero movies ever made. Superman for The Quest for Peace. If you have not seen the documentary called Electric Boogaloo, The Wild Untold Story of Canon Films, I highly recommend it because you will then understand why Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, is so awful because it answers the question, what would happen if we tried to make a Superman movie on $5.63? Because that's basically what they did. It also answers the question, why was the He-Man movie so bad? You will, you will learn so much, like why Frank, Frank Langella played Skeletor, who probably should be on this list too, but not nearly as bad as Nuclear Man, the villain, well, one of the villains in 
Superman 4. They did have Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor. He had a contract. He had to do it. John Cryer as his whiny nephew. And then this guy, Nuclear Man, who, as far as they could tell, his biggest superpower was being able to light Lex Luthor's cigar with his finger. Incredible. You are nothing. I am the father now. You have my voice. No, you have my voice. Just remember, I made you. Yeah, you're just an experiment, Freako. <laughs> What's that? Oh, no. I'm an experiment. I'm a Freako. you i can destroy you destroy destroy superman now you sweet thing but not quite yet poor gene hackman poor poor gene hackman by the way that sound you heard was john crier spinning around because nuclear man who can blow things up blow human beings up make people's heads explode conceivably is making john crier spin around a room using sound effects that i think they borrowed from the he-man cartoon it's just you need to see the movie because it's so bad it's so bad it's entertaining now we go to number two we stay in the superman universe and you just heard gene hackman as lex Luthor. and listen it, it was in the worst superman movie it was for a paycheck it's still gene hackman as lex Luthor. He was awesome as lex Luthor. you know who was terrible as lex Luthor? jesse eisenberg because you're lex Luthor. You're like the one guy in the human race willing to take on Superman, the baddest superhero pretty much ever. He's basically a god. So why are you so whiny? Problems up here. Uh, the, the problem of, of evil in the world. Uh, the problem of absolute virtue. I'll take you in without breaking you. Which is more than you deserve. The problem of you on top of everything else. You above all. Ah, because that's what God is. Horus, Apollo, Jehovah, Kal-El, Clark, Joseph, Kent. See, here's my problem. There are supervillains who come from parts of society that are left behind, who the world turns its back on them and they crack and they break and they become evil. And that's your nerdy supervillain. And that's fine. Those guys are great. But Lex Luthor's a billionaire who has the charisma to think he can take on an alien from another planet who gets superpowers from our yellow sun. That guy's not a nerd. That guy's cool. You got to play him cool. Gene Hackman played him cool. Jesse Eisenberg did not. And that was why he wound up being number two. But it is not the worst supervillain in movie history. That honor belongs to Arnold. That's right. Arnold Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze in that Batman movie that had bat nipples in it. I don't even know which one it was. I think it was the one with the seal song. 
I just know it was really bad. And I just know that his lines were almost exclusively puns. And I want to thank someone called Frozen Fish on YouTube because he made a supercut of all of Arnold's Mr. Freeze puns. And that is how I will leave you today, suffering as we all did when we watched that movie, through Frozen Puns. Tonight's forecast, a freeze is coming. Allow me to break the ice. You are not sending me to the cooler. Freeze well. What killed the dinosaurs? The ice age. Stay cool, bird boy. Let's kick some ice. Show some mercy. I'm afraid that my condition has left me cold to your pleas of mercy. All right, everyone. Chill. It's a cold town. Cool party. <laughs> Can you be cold, Batman? Chill. To perfection. Revenge is a dish best of cold. Winter has come at last. Freeze. Freeze. Ice. Freeze. Ice. Winter fire. Frozen. Ice. Freeze. Winter ice. Ice. Freeze. Winter. Winter. Freeze. Cold. Frosty. If any of you are still listening, I apologize. I am sorry I put you through that, but thanks for hanging in with me. That was tough. But thank you for listening. We'll get back to our usual college football hijinks on Monday. We'll talk to you later.